In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The problem of sin in our world seems more evident by the day. Tensions are high, relationships are frayed, and someone else might turn out to be your enemy. Although we cannot say what is in the heart of those who mistreat others, we can say with certainty that no one is supposed to die. And this reality is made even worse when death comes unjustly. The church must speak clearly on these issues. We must speak the truth, no matter how obvious it might be. Racism is sin. It is fundamentally based on an evil idea that some people are less than others. In Acts chapter 17, St. Paul preaches clearly that God made the world and everything in it, and that every nation of men is from one man. We all descend from Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve. According to creation, we are all related. When Jesus was born into this world, he took upon himself the flesh of every man. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived is redeemed and died for by Jesus, and so has ultimate worth. And this message is to be proclaimed to and for all nations, as we heard last Sunday. A civil society has no place for oppression, especially of the weak. Brutality or seeking to harm your neighbor in his body is sin. So what do we do now? Someone has been sinned against, and our whole nation is rightfully angry. And even if we do not feel the anger ourselves, We know the pain of what it is to be sinned against. Now, anger against sin is good. Anger against wrongdoing is holy and righteous and a God-pleasing good work. When we are angry, we have the good desire for things to be made right. But because of the sin in our own hearts, we misuse our anger. And as a result, we justify how sinning against our neighbor is the right thing to do, the just thing to do, sin disguised as righteous indignation. And then your neighbor turns and wants to return the favor. So the cycle goes. Being sinned against, becoming angry, justifying our actions no matter how evil, And the sin is made even more profound when it's from someone who bears authority. One who bears authority is judged more severely because of his office. When an individual sins against us, we are turned against that one person. But when one in authority abuses us, we are tempted to strike against the whole notion of that kind of authority. If the system allows one bad actor to exist, we are told that the whole system needs to come crumbling down. 
And then we reap the devastating and ruinous effects. Cities destroyed, our social fabric ripped to shreds. Rioting and looting, vandalism and vengeful destruction and anarchy, harming life and livelihood. These two are sinful. So who is to blame? A few bad actors? A tradition of poor policies compounded by bad implementation? Systemic sin? I think the predominant idea at work in our society is the notion that everyone belongs to a group. And some groups oppress others. Groups are then identified by level of oppression, and they are assigned a level of guilt based on how they oppress other groups. Individuals then bear collective guilt, regardless of individual actions. Whatever the problem might be, we desire a just solution. Certainly, we want a just society. But for that to happen, justice must happen in all places. That means I need to be brought to justice. It's not just about the other guy. It's about me. Although your neighbors can see and judge your actions, God doesn't simply see your facade. He doesn't see only your best side or what you do in public. He sees your hearts, your thoughts, your intentions. He knows all your motivations and desires, even what you hide in your heart from your neighbor, things deep within your mind. God sees these things. That God, the one God in three persons, who created all things, is here today, right now, in this very moment. He is here, and he sees you. He sees you for who you really are. So how do you stand before him? When God looks at you, and only you, what does he see? When God looks deep into your heart and your soul and your mind, what does he find? When he looks into your soul, into the history of your life, when he looks at the long list of desires that you've had, do you think he's pleased? Are you pleased with yourself? Are you comfortable? Do you think you can stand before him? If you do, what might happen if we were to take a video of the entire history of your life and release it to the public? Would you be comfortable with that? If we took a transcript of all the thoughts you've had and read them out loud for everyone to hear, or what if we said we're going to do that here tomorrow morning? Would you sleep tonight? Could you rest knowing what was about to take place? Would you be okay for everyone around you to know what you're really like? Everything you've done in your life and why? Now, if you're at all like me, I imagine you'd probably die from shame and embarrassment. 
You would crumble under the stress and guilt of your own sin. And if this is how you feel about your deepest thoughts and sins being exposed to your neighbors, then you should fear God. Because even though your neighbor cannot see these things, God can. He sees the anger in your heart and the unjust ways you seek justice against your neighbor. And this way that you feel right now is by no means unique. For this is what Isaiah knew today in our Old Testament reading. When Isaiah went to the temple, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And above him stood the seraphim, that is, the angels with six wings. With two wings they flew, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they covered their face. These angels are sinless, and though they have no sin to hide, they conceal their faces before the face of Almighty God. They cannot bear to stand before him or look him in the eye. And as they fly back and forth, they sing to one another just as we do every single Sunday before the Lord's Supper. So that what the angels sing before God in heaven is the song that we sing in our Lord's presence at his holy altar. Holy, holy, holy. Because there the triune God is present. Do you see the picture? God is sitting upon his throne in all his unveiled glory. The foundations of the whole earth are shaking. The temple is filled with smoke. And even the holy angels shield their faces from his glory. Isaiah gets to see it all. So what does he do? What's his reaction to all of this? What does he say? Is he simply excited to see God? Is he eager to grab his coffee and sit back and relax and enjoy himself while God shares a message with him? Is he hoping that God will give him some motivation and practical advice for living? You know the answer. Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean that is, sinful lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean, that is, sinful lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts himself. In other words, I'm done. I'm destroyed. I'm damned. I am literally going to die this moment and burn in hell forever. That's what Isaiah means here. And notice also what Isaiah doesn't do. He doesn't start making an excuse for his sin or explaining why it is he's unclean. He doesn't blame his sin on living among unclean and sinful people. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't argue that hell is too harsh. And he doesn't point out other people's faults and sins and say, look, that person is worse than me. For when Isaiah notes that he comes from sinful people, he's saying that to include himself among them. 
He is saying, I am just like them. He simply confesses his sin before the face of God. And he admits that he deserves to be removed from God's presence now and forever and ever. Amen. And this, dear saints, is the reaction that every Christian should have in being in the presence of God. If you want to know how to repent, this is how to do it. When you stand before God, you know the sentence that your sins have brought you. So you don't make excuses for them. You don't try to explain why you did what you did. You don't rationalize rationalize away your mistakes. You don't hide behind a pretend ignorance or act as though you are innocent and unaware of your evil thoughts and words and deeds. You don't point out other people's sins and wickedness. You don't point to all the seemingly good things you've done. All those things before God are like filthy rags anyway. You don't diminish your sin and try to pretend it's not that bad. You confess it. You stand before God and you confess that you are by nature sinful and unclean. And so you confess the sins you've even forgotten about. You claim ownership and guilt for all the sins you confess and all the sins that others have pointed out in you. You confess the sins you've hidden from others, the ones that make you happy, the ones you thought you could get away with, the ones you did get away with in the sight of the world, and the ones you run back to day after day. You confess the sins you did on accident, the sins you did on purpose, the sins you wanted to commit, the sins that damaged your soul and conscience, the sins that even killed your faith for a time. And you confess that you have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, and that you justly deserve his present and eternal punishment. This is how you confess. This is how you repent. This is what marks you as a Christian. Because a Christian confesses his sin. And this, I think, is one of the difficulties with the idea of systemic sin. It makes you personally responsible for the sins of others. Now, God calls us to confess our own sin and whatever part we've played in the sins of our society. Now, what does God do with such a confession? What does he do with those who know the seriousness of their sin, who stand before him knowing their own condemnation, knowing they can do nothing to get out from under it, that no excuse is sufficient, no reason is enough, no self-justification will take it away, Well, God takes it away. He takes it all away. He takes away their sin, their guilt, their condemnation, just as he did for Isaiah. For Isaiah, God sent his holy angel to take a burning coal from the altar to put it on Isaiah's lips. And as he did this, the angel said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
and your sin is atoned for. So what is God doing to Isaiah? Does the coal take away Isaiah's sin because it was imbued with some sort of power? Or do we mean that God was making Isaiah suffer for his sins? We know this. Isaiah was forgiven by the word that was spoken. By God's word attached to that burning coal, Isaiah's sinful lips are taken away. This is so overwhelmingly beautiful. Isaiah stands in God's presence and God absolves him of his sin. This should be a cause to rejoice forever. God forgave Isaiah because of his mercy. God forgave Isaiah because he loved Isaiah through his son. God forgave Isaiah because he knew that Christ would die to forgive all sins. It's this Christ who earned Isaiah's forgiveness. And it's this Christ who was burned up in the fire of God's wrath and anger against sin on the cross. On the cross, Christ was lost and damned and destroyed for the sins of the whole world. The God you have is the one who has already burned up all your sins with the death of Christ for you. They were burned out of existence when God covered you in the baptismal flood and washed them all away. So now when we look at the chaos and disorder of this world, We know that Christ is the one who brings all things that are chaotic and unjust back into order. This chaos and lack of justice is of the devil, the father of lies, and the great liar himself. But when you speak the truth about your sin, when you confess your sinfulness and guilt, when you admit your lying, deceiving, murderous, adulterous, gossiping, unclean lips, then God sends his angel, his messenger, his own pastor to take what God puts on the altar and to put it on your lips, to take the very body and blood of Christ sacrificed for your sins and place them in your mouth to take away your guilt, to give you the atonement for your sins that Christ won on the cross, You have Christ's righteousness to clothe you, and you are baptized into his name. The justice that he won on the cross is delivered to you. So when you are confronted with your own sin, don't be afraid. Remember that your sin is atoned for, and give it to Jesus. And when you see the sin of others, First, recognize that same sin in your own hearts and confess it to receive our Lord's absolution. When it comes to sin, we are all in this together. And Christ died for all the sons and daughters of Adam. So when you see the sin of your neighbor, tell him the same, that his sin is atoned for, because his sin, too, is died for by Jesus. God works repentance and faith in each one of us. And as you go out, 
you do what Isaiah did. Having partaken of the altar, you now speak of the altar. Send it forth by God's blessing. You bless your neighbors. Bless and not curse. Telling them of the justice that God has given you in Jesus' body and blood. And you pray. The church always prays for peace, loves peace, works for peace. You pray that God would bring all people to know the justice he accomplished for them in Jesus. You look at all the trouble in the world as an occasion to pray, to sacrifice and love and serve. You pray for peace throughout the land. You pray that God would defend the weak and helpless, that the courts would make right decisions. You hear the Eighth Commandment and put the best construction on everything. And when you see that you have failed, when you recognize how you have failed to love your neighbor, then you return once more to this holy altar, where Jesus once again sends his holy angel to restore you by his word and his body and blood. Here, justice is done. It is finished. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.